Welcome into TYT's Indisputable, it is Adrian Lawrence and I am filling in for Dr. Richie for today, but do not worry, he will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, you are stuck with me and Dina Dahl. That's right, legal analysts and attorneys. You've got two attorneys on deck today. And because there's a lot of legal stuff going on, you are gonna be very appreciative to have us here. Let's go ahead and get this thing started. And we're gonna start with what happened last night at the 94th Oscar Awards. Yeah, the Academy Awards. Absolutely wild, I'm sure we heard it as a slap heard around the world. We know that Chris Rock told a joke about the baldness of Will Smith's wife, that's Jada Pinkett Smith. And well, Will did not respond as many of us would have thought he would. Here's the footage. Uh oh, Richard. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Yeah, yeah, Will Smith went up, slapped Chris Rock. Wow, wow is the word. So following the slap, Smith returned to his seat and he told Rock to keep his wife's name out of his effing mouth. And well, the joke that Rock said that really set off Smith was essentially Jada can't wait for GI Jane 2, which is, you know, making fun of the fact that, hey, she has no hair and GI Jane, which is played by Demi Moore, shaved her head in that film. And this joke really seemed to make Jada visually uncomfortable, as you can see here. And what we know is that Pinkett Smith had announced last year that she suffers from alopecia, which is why she was shaving her head. That's an autoimmune disease that causes uncontrollable hair loss. And the thing is, Chris Rock should have been familiar with alopecia, even if he didn't necessarily know whether Jada had the disease or not, because he touched on the subject when he talked about black women's hair loss in his 20, 2009 documentary, Good Hair. I saw good hair, I know what was talked about. And the thing is, this isn't the first time Chris Rock has talked about Jada Pinkett Smith. Publicly, that is. Well, because during her Oscar protest in 2016, Rock, who was hosting that year, said Jada got mad, said she's not coming. Jada boycotting the Oscars is like me boycotting Rihanna's panties. I wasn't invited anyway. Well, after winning Best Actor for his role last night in King Richard, well, Will Smith apologized. Of course, to everyone except for Chris Rock. And Smith was crying a lot during his entire address. In terms of the legal fallout here, because as we know, as you randomly walk up and hit somebody, it could be considered an assault. Well, this is what we know. Early Monday morning, a spokesperson for the LAPD confirmed that Rock declined to press charges against Smith. LAPD investigative entities are aware of an incident between two individuals during the Academy Awards program. The spokesperson said in a statement, the incident involved one individual slapping another. The individual involved has declined to file a police report. If the involved party desires a police report at a later date, LAPD will be available to complete an investigative report. Wow, so we have two A-list celebrities smacking each other, or at least one smacking the other on primetime TV. Uh, Dina, what are your thoughts? You know, it is pretty shocking, right? Because we, ex- I guess, expect celebrities to maybe be able to conduct themselves in this kind of situation. You know, I always kind of feel for the per, the victim, you know, in a situation. And I do think Chris Rock was the victim here, although he did say an inappropriate and offensive joke. You know, I think it's never okay to resort to violence. And I wonder if he was protected enough in that situation. You know, did an Academy Award person who was his boss, right? I mean, this was a job for him, this was a workplace for him. Did they go up and 
ascertain whether or not you know to talk to Will Smith during the break or anything like that. You know, if I were Chris Rock, you know, I don't know if I would want to have had to press charges in order for somebody to be kind of looking out for my interest. And I wonder if, it, I mean, in the moment, the, the Academy probably didn't quite know how to handle this situation. But I do think that we have to always kind of support somebody who's in that, you know, receiving end of of getting hit for any reason. Yeah, I think a lot of people weren't necessarily certain whether they were joking around or not, given that they've been in the industry for long periods of time, both dabbled or at least definitely do comedy. And I'm sure it was quite shocking. I do, it is my understanding that the members of the Academy did go up and approach both of them, checked in on them and whatnot. But we also know that things blew up on social media. That and it revealed quite a divide out there. We got to see who is the violence is never the answer versus who is the, you know, mess around and find out. And so one of them in the since deleted tweet was Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. She happens to suffer from alopecia herself. Well, she's evidently team Will. She tweeted out, alopecia nation stand up. Thank you, Will Smith. Shout out to all the husbands who defend their wives living with alopecia in the face of daily ignorance and insults. Oscars women with baldies are for real men only, only boys need not apply. And this tweet was deleted after it was posted and it went up quickly. Another tweet that was deleted after it went up, but it went up for quite some time because it got ratioed to death. Well, that was from director Judd Apatow. Check out this tweet from him. He said about Will Smith, he could have killed him. That's pure out of control rage and violence. They've heard a million jokes about them in the last three decades. They are not freshmen in the world of Hollywood and comedy, he lost his mind. This is so interesting because it does speak to a divide. We have Ayanna Presley, who is a black woman and has been on the receiving end of alopecia jokes, comments, remarks. And also knows just being a black woman, what misogynoir is like and the fact that people come at us black women all the time. So to be defended, not only as a black woman, but also one who has an autoimmune disorder, shall we say a disability, it's a hell of a thing. It's something that we don't see very often. Particularly because there's this racist notion that black women do not need protection. And so this thought that if Will Smith is out here protecting his wife or standing up for her, that that is such a foreign concept. And then you also have individuals like Judd Apatow who tweeted out this thought that he could have killed him. Yeah, because being slapped in the face is what going to cause death. You know, it just really hearkened this thought that black men are inherently dangerous, deadly in some way when it was it was inappropriate, yeah, but it was just a slap. So for Apatow to describe Will Smith like this, I see why he deleted it and got ratioed out of control because to 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 claim Will Smith was out of control with rage and violence. It's like all we do is get these hyped up senses of animalistic qualities and behaviors that are far from the truth because in my opinion, if this was Tom Hanks going up there to defend Rita Wilson, everybody would have been thumbs up. Good man, not even questioning a damn thing. But because it's Will Smith, a black man, I think that that's why we are seeing this significant divide in terms of responses. Where you have people saying, "Oh, you know, I'm glad he stood up for his wife, Massage Noir needs to end. And then you have other people saying he should be put in handcuffs. Dina? 
No, I, I think that I think you make really great points. But I, I also think if Chris Rock had been a white man, would they have kind of allowed again, kind of maybe allowed it to happen? Or would there have been more of an outrage for him kind of being victimized? But because there were two black men, did people kind of say, well, okay, you know, it's just like a fight between them and maybe like hands off, not do anything? You know, was there enough of an outrage about it? You know, I think that if he had just said what he said, right, in his seats, yelled out, cursed out, he could have defended him defended his wife in a way that was still, you know, really outside the norm and in the moment. And I, I would have been much more okay with that. But then once he kind of gets up and again hits somebody in the middle of their job, um, and then they're and they're not, I think, being enough of a protection against the fact. I mean, Chris Rock. I mean, they're lucky that Chris Rock didn't try to hit him back. That he was professional. He continued the show. You know, he. Yes, he said a, a, a bad joke. Uh, some people could say though, being included in his monologue, it almost makes you relevant, right? I mean, there was a ton of stars who probably wish they could have had a joke. And it was a bad joke. And again, if he had said something but not hit him, I, I would be much more on Will Smith's side. But but instead, I feel, um, I feel for, for Chris Rock in the moment. Yeah, you know, I just think that there's a lot of difficulty, at least struggle for me as a black woman on the receiving end of massage noir. Because when someone actually finally does stand up to for us, it becomes a matter of, oh, you didn't do it right, or oh, this wasn't the right time, or your response wasn't okay. Also, too, you know, again, I, I agree. If the if there were interracial dynamics here, I definitely think Will Smith would be far, far more in trouble than he is now, because now it's just considered an embarrassing moment for him. But also, you could see that Chris Rock had been hit plenty of times heretofore. The way he snapped back with the quickness, nah, he braced for impact. I'm sure that man, it's been a long time since he's been clocked while he's doing his standup routines. But it, I, I think he'll be okay. And I'm glad that they were able to work this out. But I think that we do need to have deeper conversations in society in terms of how black women are treated and mistreated on public stages. And also what needs to be done to stand up for them. Let's go ahead and move on to our next story, which does involve somebody's wife. You know, right now we have Justice Clarence Thomas, who was just released from the hospital last week, returning to the Supreme Court oral arguments. In his, uh, you know, in his home situation, we got some problems because it appears that his wife will be hauled before Congress in no time. Per CNN. The 1-6 committee will be reaching out to Virginia Jenny Thomas about her text message exchange with Mark Meadows. That's President Donald Trump's former White House Chief of Staff. CNN reports this specifically. The committee has had ongoing discussions about Jenny Thomas and CNN reported last week that it has in its possession 29 text messages that show her pleading with Meadows to continue the fight to overturn the 2020 presidential election results. Now here is a quick recap of the gist of Jenny's many messages with Mark Meadows in case you forgot from last week's breaking news. In text messages to Meadows, Jenny Thomas called election day a heist and repeated debunked theories about evidence of election fraud. Thomas actively weighed in on the makeup of Trump's legal team with a particular focus on ensuring that Meadows helped Sidney Powell be the lead and the face of the team. She weighed in directly on legal strategy saying sounds like Sidney and her team are getting inundated with evidence of fraud. Make a plan, release the Kraken and save us from the left taking America down. 
Ooh, that is a lot to say, especially for a woman who is the wife of a Supreme Court justice. But if you know Jenny Thomas, you know that she is a conservative activist. Now, she recently revealed that she did attend Trump's Stop the Steal rally on January 6th, even though she said she didn't participate in all in the insurrection or in planning it. Well, I'd like to know, Dana, what do you think in terms of her text messages? Do they seem to undermine this claim that she had no role whatsoever in planning the 1-6 attack on the Capitol? I absolutely think you're right. Yes, I mean, these text messages are very incriminating. I mean, she's talking to the chief of staff and really urging for them to continue to try to overthrow this election, which is rightly people are very shocked about this because she is the wife to our third, you know, a member on the third branch of government, the one that we hoped would stop something. Right, if the other two branches kind of got in cahoots about it. So this is really serious. And I do think that the committee is going to end up subpoenaing her because in one of those text messages, she mentions that she had a conversation with her best friend. And evidently, they both, her and her husband, you have used that term to describe each other. They now have a duty to find out if she is indeed talking about him. So this is gonna get, I mean, talk about, you know, separate. Powers. This is going to get very interesting if she decides not to follow her her subpoena and it gets issued to the Department of Justice. I mean, you know, it goes up to the court where her husband is, where theoretically he doesn't have to recuse himself. We are definitely going into some uncharted legal territory here. Yeah, it definitely seems like the Trump administration, everything associated with them has been uncharted legal territory in part because it's been so damn corrupt. And we know that Jenny Thomas's text messages with the White House, well, they raise a conflict of interest issue as far as it concerns, which Dina did note earlier. Because we have Clarence Thomas sitting on the US Supreme Court and he has been involved in cases that involve things like the 2020 presidential election and January 6th, cases in which Thomas probably should have recused himself. So what we do know is that in February 2021, Justice Thomas wrote a dissent after the majority declined to hear a case filed by Pennsylvania Republicans that sought to disqualify certain mail-in ballots. In January 2022, Thomas was the only justice who said publicly that he was against allowing the release of records from the Trump White House related to the January 6th attack. And if I if I recall correctly, I believe the petition from Trump's party that went up to the US Supreme Court was directed directly at Chief or at Judge Thomas, which says a lot. And we also know that several Democratic lawmakers have been saying a lot for when it comes to calling out the impropriety of this situation. Amy Klobuchar, she said this is a textbook case for removing him, referring to Justice Thomas, recusing him from the January 6th related decisions. The entire integrity of the court is on the line here. Also, Senator Roy Wyden, Democrat from Oregon, said judges are obligated to recuse themselves when their participation in a case would create even the appearance of a conflict of interest. A person with an ounce of common sense could see that bar is met here. Thomas's conduct on the Supreme Court looks increasingly corrupt. Indeed it does. People already had have very little faith in our US Supreme Court after seeing all the political actions and activities they're taking, especially when they are straying from precedent to come up with some kind of ruling and result that favors the right wing. And now to have Jenny Thomas text messages leaked showing that she was in cahoots with the White House and to see Justice Thomas continue to stay on these cases and have been the lone dissenter or the lone objector in certain cases. It really tells us that there is such an incestuous relationship in our government that we do not have three independent parties at all. Dina, your thoughts? 
I know if he, you know, it's hard because right now they, the Supreme Court is not, does not have an ethical rules of conduct like the other federal judges. So it's Chief Justice Roberts is in some ways limited by what he can do. If that were in place, he could, you know, that could trigger, you know, a forcing Justice Thomas to recuse himself. So I think what could happen is if Justice Thomas continues to not recuse himself, the outcry is going to get so loud that he may very well get impeached, which of course, you know, the Democrats wouldn't mind that because that would allow them to, you know, put in a more liberal justice. That is going to be a huge fight if that happens. That's only happened one other time in our history where somebody was actually impeached and removed. So, you know, that will be interesting. Or this might, you know, urge Chief Justice Roberts might decide to go ahead and put in an ethical rules of conduct in order to kind of stave off this growing political momentum and allow them to you know, self kind of discipline themselves. But I think one of the two is going to happen because we've never had such a politicized Supreme Court. You know, we no, usually in the past have had a majority of senators vote them in. So this is becoming more political. One of the two is, is gonna to come to a head here. Yep, I absolutely agree. They've got a problem. We kind of may have a problem. The Supreme Court kicked a case down to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and they finally issued a ruling, and it's not good for freedom of speech or civil rights protests. So the Louisiana Supreme Court ruled that a police officer injured during a protest could sue the protest organizer. This case arose out of a 2016 protest of the police fatal shooting of Alton Sterling. And the officer went on to claim that he was injured by some hard object that was thrown toward his head. And that the organizer of the protester is the one who's responsible, that is DeRay McKesson. And you may know DeRay, here's a photo of him. He has been involved in a lot of Black Lives Matters conversations as well as possibly facing liability here. And what the majority opinion, it said in concurring part, it ruled that because it's alleged that McKesson with knowledge that such protest could turn violent, stage a protest in direct contravention of law, thereby provoking the police to respond, a person can easily associate the injury to the police officer with the alleged conduct. And this decision was six to one with one lone justice out there at the Louisiana Supreme Court recognizing how dangerous this could be for First Amendment rights when it comes to protests. And so this justice here in the dissent wrote this. Finding that McKesson had a legal duty in the case will have a chilling effect on political protests in general as nothing prevents a bad actor from attending an otherwise peaceful protest and committing acts of violence. Courts would see increased litigation from all sides of the political spectrum and the flow of political speech could hinge on which viewpoints had patrons with deeper pockets. Now, Dina, we only have just a few seconds left, but what are your thoughts on this? I mean, it's this state law in particular is so so bad. So it might require the legislation to be overruled. But it, it will also, I think, be very hard to prove that this object came from somebody within that protest. So although it did go down to the lower court, my hope is that they do not prevail. So this does not become a precedent because otherwise it is very dangerous for future protests in the First Amendment.
Absolutely, and the fact that they have that Louisiana Supreme Court decision out there interpreting that state law can be very problematic in the state of Louisiana when it comes to protesting any kind of injustice and civil rights issue. But we hope that people are not silenced and they continue to use their voices. And we will definitely have more voices for you and more stories when we come back. So stick and stay as they say. Welcome back to TYT's Indisputable, it's Adrian Lawrence and Guess what? Well, there's more the watch list. It is every day and you have to join JR Jackson because he has all the intel you need to see. You can go to youtube.com slash watchlist TYT and follow and like them on facebook.com slash watchlist TYT. That's weekdays, 12 Eastern, 9 Pacific. Also, have you checked out the damage report as a podcast? Cuz let me tell you, it is hot and hopping and you will want to listen. Go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please remember to search for the damage report click follow and rate us with the five. And if you're up for canvassing, well, canvassing 2020 is not a bad idea. The midterm elections are fast approaching and we know the mainstream media won't cover progressive voices. Ah, because of the TYT audience is too strong, we can make a difference in those midterm elections. And we've done it before, so we're gonna keep doing it. Support our mission to drive positive change. Visit tyt.com slash canvas 2022. All right, so let's see what you all have to say. Well, when we were talking about the Oscars, as we know now, it drew an average of 15.3 million viewers. That's a 56% increase from last year's show. Uh, shall we say, as much as people may not have liked it there at the Academy, well, they loved it in terms of ratings, because Lord knows they needed it. As far as y'all have to say, Ayalana says, it wasn't a joke. Stop using the disabled community as your free punching bag, indeed, because Chris Rock was effectively punching down at a black woman with a disability. Also, Chocolate Giddy Up says, not sure who needs to hear this or why it needs to be said, but making fun of people with medical conditions that make them lose their hair is incredibly bad taste and 100% worthy of getting you slapped on site. That said, Will should have done it later backstage. I will say there was a lot for him to walk up in the middle of that. That's a hell of a thing. Sergio Nas says, what Will did wasn't right, but I can respect that he defended his wife. A lot of people feel that way. Democracy for Sale says thumbs down for both of them. Rock made an insensitive, distasteful, misogynistic joke. There's no arguing that point, but Smith making it physical was out of bounds and completely unnecessary. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. As far as the January 6th committee, roping in Jenny Thomas. Well, Margarita Villeman says Thomas needs to just submit his retirement and disappear. Oh Lord, that would just be a wonderful day. Colorado Blue Blazer regular, I'm so disappointed. In the Grim Reaper. How on earth did he bypass Clarence Thomas's room last week? Do not get me started. Uh, Jesse James 702, the character Stephen from Django was actually based on Justice Clarence Thomas. I will not go there. Galvatron, there were rumors she organized some of the bus loads, wouldn't be surprised. Hillbilly Farmer, never thought I would agree with Amy Klobuchar, but yes, indeed, Thomas needs to exit the Supreme Court immediately, I'd say post haste. Uh, and Feral Dragon, thanks for the $5 hit up. Thomas recused himself from the 1995 VA Military Institute case and because his son attended the Virginia Military Institute, his son was not involved in policy, but still Thomas knew better. So clearly should have known something now. As far as the courts in Louisiana with the BLM activists, well, a very stable photographer says Louisiana always works very hard to criminalize any and all people of color. And Chinook Adventures RV, I'm sorry, but if you're a cop and you signed up for whatever comes your way, this is just another way to silence activists, agreed. Curtis Thomas says, then can the same ruling be applied to cops suing the organizers of January 6th? 
I would really, really like to know that too. I would like to know that very much though. And I'd also like to know who this gentleman was involved in the what? Uh, I wish a Karen Wood from last week and we do have some updates for you. So here we go. You wanna call the police on them for having a barbecue on a Sunday? You're gonna feel great, back off! I'm gonna tell them there's an African-American man threatening my life. Hiring illegal immigrants. Because of your rude behavior. Sure. Illegal immigrants? Illegal immigrants, yes. Are you born in the United States? Yes. Where? Here. Here's where? Portland. Portland. Yes. And was your colleague, the hey, rude mom, colleague, mom. born in the United Don't States? Don't care. Don't you ask me something about wanting to go my race, I'm going to break all your windows, all right? Oh, really? So now you're threatening. We definitely have some updates on that gentleman who had the nerve to ask that woman all sorts of implicitly racist and ethnocentric comments. And it comes from a university. That's right, Reed College officials have acknowledged a video circulating online that appears to show one of its professors making offensive and racist comments at a local business. The video was first shared on TikTok last week, but it caught the attention of the school's president, Audrey Bilger, after someone posted it on Twitter Friday. Well, we know that well-known Twitter user and TikToker Denise later identified the Karen. Denise tweeted, I've identified this racist and possibly drunk driver as Paul J. Curry, psychology professor at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. Now here's a snapshot of Paul Curry from the video next to a photo of him as the professor from Reed College's website. Wow, hmm, definitely seems to look like him. Yep, and this man Curry, we know that he teaches at Reed, a small liberal arts school described by the Princeton Review as one of the most distinctive colleges in the nation. Yeah, that's right, it's a heavy hitter, very elite. And on Friday, Bilger, that's the school's president, as well as Kathy Olison, dean of the faculty and professor of psychology, acknowledged the incident, writing a statement addressed to students, faculty, and staff. According to Bilger, the incident has our full attention both to ascertain the accuracy of the video, to engage a valued member of our community in conversation about what appears to show and to follow our guidelines for addressing discriminatory speech. That's really interesting. It pretty much tells me nothing is going to happen. Number one, what undermining the legitimacy of the video, which I get you, there are a lot of deep fakes out here, but I don't think people are pulling deep fakes on this professor at this elite school. On top of that, yeah, yeah, the man did not necessarily look like he was entirely sober. So I kind of maybe look in that direction as well. But also too, should you have to teach a professor of psychology who I believe he does some neuro work that you shouldn't be asking people where they're from or implying that they have no right to engage or speak to you or that they have some deficiency because they may not sound like you or look like you, get out of here. If anything, this says a lot about the community at Reed and what its academic administration is really about. Dina. Yeah, it's so completely offensive. You know, my father immigrated here in the 50s and has all sorts of stories like this. And it astounds me that this is, I guess, not gone out of style, right? This completely discriminatory. What does it matter where they're born? I mean, we see this time and time again on this show. Unfortunately, there are plenty of people, you know, who have are just wanting to put other people down, right? That's what it is, he's trying to put her down. And she is not less than him, but he somehow thinks it. And you're right, I mean, he clearly seems impaired. 
while he's driving, which is very uh, a threat right there. I hope the Reed community really does do something about this because the students in his class who aren't born here, you know, are not going to feel safe. And you have to feel safe in your classroom in order to be able to learn. So I hope that um, they they take this very seriously. Absolutely, and we all know that this kind of stuff is never one-off. This is a behavior. So if you do not reevaluate all of the complaints he's ever received, or ask and investigate if the students in his class feel that they've been targeted in any way or mistreated, then Reed administration is not doing its job, and it's not worth a dime of the money that I know those students are contributing to keep them to keep them going essentially and to keep their lights on. So I really hope that they get right and do whatever investigation they need to do and possibly put someone out on their ass. But let's go ahead and go over to Philly where somebody has been put out on their ass in terms of a pair of handcuffs. There was a Philadelphia area mom who was convicted on Friday of sending repeated harassing text messages to parents of three teenage girls on the rival cheerleading squad of the woman's daughter. Yeah, yeah, that's that's for real. Let's put up her picture. This is Rafaela Spoon, a 51 year old. She was found guilty by a Bucks County jury after about an hour and a half of deliberation. It was quick, they knew, guilty. The texts were first reported to police in July 2020 when coaches at the Victory Vipers Cheerleading Gym in the Doylestown Township in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania received anonymous messages about what some of the team members were posting on social media. Over the next six weeks, additional messages were sent to the girls' mothers, all from different unknown numbers. And the prosecutor said Spoon's behavior was weird, creepy, and unsettling, and ultimately, yeah, illegal. As reported by the Philadelphia Inquirer, the case generated international interest after prosecutors accused the suburban mom of creating digital deep fakes of the teenage victims. But in the end, they presented no evidence that the photos and videos sent in the messages had been altered. Still, they said Spoon's behavior constituted harassment and urged the jury of seven women and five men to find her guilty. Now, it became clear during the four day trial that the images Spoon sent had not been doctored. One video showed one of the girls smoking a vape while others depicted the girls posing for pictures at parties and wearing bikinis. The assistant district attorney, Julia Wilkins, she said, quote, you may not like the girls, you may not like the way their parents parent them, but the fact of the matter is that this affected them. Their moms getting anonymous messages about them affected their mental health and well-being. And Spone's attorney, well, that gentleman happened to say that the jurors still got it wrong, that the case lacked merit, especially after the alleged deep fakes had been dismissed. He said prosecutors had not proven beyond a reasonable doubt that Spone had sent the text messages. But whoever did send the messages, he said, clearly was a concerned parent who wanted the teen's mother mothers to see what they had been posting publicly on social media. One of them, a video from TikTok, showed a victim saying she was starving herself and had contemplated suicide, which Birch said had been a clear cry for help. Interestingly enough, even as much as the attorney Burke had said that this woman's phone didn't do this. Well, one thing we definitely always know is that the numbers never lie. And in this case, the numbers happen to be her IP address. Detectives had traced the messages to Spone's home through her IP address and found that she had to use a smartphone application to block her number. While searching her iPhone, detectives discovered the same videos and pictures sent to the parents as well as disparaging texts about one of the victims that Spone sent to an acquaintance. In another 
message sent after Spohn was first contacted by the Texas at the outside of the investigation. She wrote, since when is informing them what their kids are doing a crime? Wilkins seized on this telling jurors Spohn's claim about being concerned were insincere. Insincere indeed it seemed, cuz why she was so focused on her rival cheerleaders, I guess, extracurriculars is beyond me. But that definitely goes in that whole what it takes a village mentality, Dina. Yeah, this is like helicopter mom gone bad, right? Because I mean, I can't even imagine taking time to go through the social media posts of these girls and then getting the burner phone and different phone numbers. I mean, she was obsessed. So I think they got it right in terms of the harassment because to go to this this effort, this much effort it was really disturbing and it set a good example for the for the women and the girls that it's not okay right to get harassed. I do think the evidence was kind of flimsy. I think the prosecution was lucky they got a conviction. I think if she had sent these same texts but from her phone, she probably wouldn't have gotten convicted. I think it was the anonymous nature of it that kind of bumped it up to the harassment level because they were publicly available information that she was giving them. It wasn't threats so much that she was texting. But yeah, this is definitely why some people need to be maybe a little bit more detached from their children. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I think the evidence was pretty sound in terms of having, knowing that it was her who sent it with the IP address, having the copies on her phone. But I agree with you in terms of the fact that she tried to conceal her activity, showed she was trying to harass, whereas she could have just been forthright if she was truly sincerely concerned and just approaching the parents and saying, hey, you know, I saw this online with your child and for her to do it in this underhanded way really shows that she was trying to harass these people. But I definitely kind of agree with you in that. I don't know, was this really that harassing to find out what your kids are doing? Um, yeah, yeah, and especially if it's already public, publicly accessible, but who knows, she could have sent a plethora of text messages, which can be very bothersome to many people. But we will definitely have more for you when we get back about some bothering stories and some interesting news. Stick and stay, as they say. Welcome back to TYT's Indisputable. It is Adrian Lawrence filling in for Dr. Richie. And let's go ahead and jump into our first story after we hear from you all. Of course, I wasn't gonna skip it, please. I love your thoughts. So for the male Karen professors, well, uh, a racist comment, uh, TND Joes. That says the dog hates Karens. Yeah, we saw that dog jumping through the window. It was very cute. The agnostic sister, meds or drunk, neither is an excuse. That's right. And mom, love to see it. What makes people think they can behave like this in the age of cell phone video privilege? Question mark. Yeah, I'm sure he thinks Tanya is gonna tuck him in at night. Yeetwood Mac says he kind of looks like a ventriloquist dummy come to life to be racist. Yeah. Nana Nikki, investigate the accuracy of the video. Exactly. Don't get me started. People out here starting conspiracy theories because they don't want to hold people accountable. And let's go ahead and turn to some issues that are going on right now. The Black News Channel. That's a TV news service that was launched in early 2020 to be a voice for people of color. Well, it abruptly ceased operations Friday afternoon. And the company is now said to be filing for bankruptcy today. The Young Cable News Network, well, it has been 
surrounded by ongoing controversy, particularly surrounding the compensation of its employees and ensuring that they get paid as well as the reasoning for their failure as a network. So first to address the issue, let's go ahead and look at this photo here. This is of those faces that started the network. That is right, that is something that was brought together by former US rep JC Watts, the Republican out of Oklahoma and a media executive, Bob Brilliant. That's the channel launched after Jacksonville Jaguars owner Shad Khan. Well, he made a $50 million investment in 2019, making him a majority shareholder. That's him right there on the right. So they had $50 million to start, yet on Friday, an email was released from Princel Hare, that's the CEO of BNC. Essentially pointing the finger at several external factors to justify the network's failure. Per the LA Times, the article or the email said, unfortunately, due to challenging market conditions and global financial pressures, we have been unable to meet our financial goals and the timeline afforded to us has run out. Now, what we do know is that when Watts announced the network, that he signaled that it would be a conservative slant, which likely turned off a large segment of his potential audience. He touted a possible show with right wing radio host and former California gubernatorial candidate Larry Elder. And so, well, they didn't get a good start, essentially going straight into cable news while a lot of people are cord cutting and people are watching the digital sphere. And now, Cutting operations has been to the chagrin of a lot of former employees who reportedly have not been paid for weeks. And this is what we know from News One. Trouble at the network has been brewing for a few months with news of layoffs and harassment this past winter. A month ago, NABJ representatives met with the network's leadership to address reports of gender and racial discrimination. BNC employees alleged issues with pay inequity, hostile interactions with BNC management, and a culture of harassment. With this perspective bankruptcy looming that is said to be filed today, this could also impact those outstanding gender and race discrimination claims made against the network. What we do also know from the LA Times is that several of the plaintiffs in this suit state that they were paid less than their male counterparts. In one case, a female supervisor was allegedly paid less than the two men who reported to her. The complaint alleges a pattern of BNC managers complaining about behavior by female employees who they believe behaved too aggressively or were insufficiently docile. Employees were told to raise workplace issues with their supervisors, even if the supervisors were to the subjects of their complaint. And this has bigger implications, most definitely it would seem, for the future of black run networks, especially if we're getting funding from non-black people again. And whether that's something that a lot of networks will go ahead and allow and support. What do you think, Dina? Yeah, I appeared on on that show, and I think my heart kind of goes out to those employees who didn't get paid for the last few weeks. Because you know, journalism in general has been under fire, right? Since Donald Trump calls it fake media, and they are constantly on the front lines in terms of the war or just here. I mean, like you said, cable news versus streaming. And journalists in general are kind of underpaid to begin with, and they work extremely long hours. And so, and here these journalists are mostly people of color. And so for them to not have gotten paid for their work, you know, especially with one of their co-founders being a billionaire, it just kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. 
Absolutely, and I think the same thing. And I and I do hope they're getting it paid. And it's my understanding that they've been promised that there will be some pay coming in the next several weeks. But still, for people not to get paid over weeks at a time, when people are living paycheck to paycheck, this can be a very difficult time. That. That's very upsetting, especially if you are giving your all to an organization. And then also when you look at the situation here where you have Khan contributing that $50 million, it seems that this investor did pay, that they did put money out there. And the question comes, what happened to it? And then also I can't help but think of these individuals who filed the lawsuits or have alleged these allegations with their pending lawsuits against the company. If they file for bankruptcy and they have no assets, whether it's due to mismanagement of funds or some kind of internal error or issue whatsoever, these individuals could be out of, out of luck, Dina. Yeah, exactly. You know, even if they kind of survive, they're going to be, you know, at the end of the line with the creditors. So there probably wouldn't be anything to pay. And it does sound like, I mean, we know, I think, with the first CEO was like a former Republican congressman who had run another kind of defunct media company. It really does sound like it was mismanaged. Their initial wanting to be conservative, I could see that having turned off a lot of people. And then just all these reports, you know, about the gender issue, you know, just the basic of, what you mentioned, having to report to your supervisor an issue with your supervisor. I mean, that's almost HR 101 not to do that. So it's really too bad because I think a lot of their programming was actually really great. But it sounds like behind the scenes, it just wasn't run very well. And, and that's what's happened to close them down. That's very unfortunate. Let's go ahead and move to another issue about what's going on behind the scenes. Well, the NYPD, their recent arrest of an 18 year old woman for hopping subway turnstiles. Well, it's reigniting the debate about subway crackdowns. Watch this video here. You're in the subway. I'm resistant. What's your name? What's your name? Four officers surrounding that 18 year old woman, handcuffing her, wow, as she cries for help. Yes, look at this still here, let that resonate with you. Do you really need four officers for jumping a turnstile? And police say that the 18 year old, one of them was bitten by her, that's what they claim. And punched, she punched another in the face when she was caught hopping the turnstile. They're also claiming that the 18 year old is known to the department. And so they took her into custody. Among those outraged in response to the local, was local council member Chi Aussie, who compared the woman's arrest to the subway death of an Asian woman shoved in front of the train in Times Square earlier this year. He wrote in a tweet, Four cops were on the platform when Michelle Goh was tragically pushed into the subway tracks and the police did nothing. A black woman hops a turnstile and 
is confronted with four cops with handcuffs, tasers, and firearms for $2.75. Now, Friday's Bed-Stuy arrest comes amid the NYPD's controversial revival of broken windows policing, or a crackdown of quality of life offenses police say will reduce a citywide spike in violent crimes and thefts. The tactic, which is in the past has included a focus on fair evasion, have been condemned by advocates who argue they're ineffective against reducing violent crime and disproportionately affect black, brown, and low-income people. The NYPD also says that several weeks into the crackdown of strap hangers, that violating transit rules under Mayor Eric Adams subway safety plan, which in its first week saw 455 people, many homeless New Yorkers ejected from the transit system. And just last Monday, if you recall, Mayor Eric Adams stated that New York City's DAs should go back to prosecuting people who commit subway fare evasion. He believes prosecutors declining to press charges sent the wrong message. They need to, it's a crime, it's a crime. Adams said during a press conference in the Bronx with NYPD leadership in response to a question about controversial soft on crime. DAs in Brooklyn and Manhattan, Alvin, Manhattan's Alvin Bragg, who have opted not to prosecute fair beaters. Adams said prosecutors soft touch on turnstile jumpers has fed into increased subway crime rates in recent years. Dina, what are your thoughts on this one? I mean, it's a horrible video. I mean, we there's doesn't seem to be any reason to have these four, you know, large men on her. And I don't understand why, you know, trying to do kind of the right goal. I mean, Mayor Adams, the reason why they're were probably so many officers on duty is he just recently kind of upped the amount of officers that were gonna be on subways because of the really legitimate issue of people getting pushed and killed in the subway. I mean, there was an issue here, but it's really sad that this is, you know, kind of the result of it. This is not what we want there to be so much focus on. So, I mean, New York City has kind of a major issue because the um, a lot, you know, the amount of people riding the subway has gone way down. They a lot of revenue comes from the subway, and this was the mayor's, you know, wanting to kind of make people feel safe was to have more transit workers. But that kind of video isn't gonna make people feel safe, especially people of color. And I don't understand why the police kind of continue to always do this, you know, in their in their pursuit of maybe a, a, a worthy goal, you know, doing it in, in such a wrong way like this. Yeah, I know, and definitely when it comes to video, it's very problematic, you know, because we saw Eric Adams kind of implicitly threaten people in terms of filming police and saying, you know, there's a proper way to film police and to document it. Stop being on top of my police officers while they're carrying out their jobs, and that should be really, really disheartening to a lot of people, and also very scary. Because these things need to be documented so people can decide what leaders they want to put in positions of authority who are going to make decisions like this of whether to over police people. And this whole broken windows policing theory, which I was well educated on at my time at John Jay in New York City, it's it's not necessarily fit for the current times. The fact is we have a lot of social ills that are creating circumstances and situations for why you end up having so many homeless on the street and without providing opportunities, alternatives, without raising the infrastructure so that people have a place to go and can be safe and also can have access to basic transportation. It's it's just punishing people for being poor. 
And that's not right. And also too, the way that this young lady was treated is completely and totally unacceptable, especially for just jumping a turnstile. Like that's that's just excessive, it's wrong. And I don't think that this is how we should be using our resources. Um, yeah, and I think it's, it's a significant problem. Do you have any final words, Dina? No, I mean, I agree. You know, it's if she did punch and bite them, then, you know, I can see why she was arrested. But again, there's no need for there had to have been so many people. She was not, it didn't, you know, she was a tiny woman. And, and I would think one officer could have handled that. Yeah, and if anything, why the need to uh, to hold her to the ground and treat her the way that they treated her? It just seems excessive. If they could actually have officers helping out uh, in crime prevention, that would be great. Even though we know the studies and stats show that they don't do much in terms of crime prevention, and so you can't say that their presence changes anything as people are still uh, fair jumping with or without NYPD being president or present. But we're gonna have to see how this is handled. But there are a lot of things coming out of the mayor's office right now that are very very disconcerting, particularly when it comes to use of police force and condoning that kind of hard hitting police response. But we do very, very much appreciate having you here, Dina. You have been a delight and very insightful from start to finish. Can you please tell the viewers where they can follow you and find out more? Well, it was so great being on the show while you were hosting. Thank you for having me. They can follow me on Twitter, AskDinaDoll1. Excellent, thank you so much for joining us, Dina. And thank you so much for joining me today. Dr. Richie should be back tomorrow and I believe I am guest hosting. So you may just see me again. Welcome to Indisputable, I'm your host, Dr. Rashad Richie. We got a lot happening today, but what do we do on this show? We tell the truth, you know why we tell the truth? Because the truth is simply indisputable. Rashad, great to be here, congratulations on the new show. And I gotta let everybody know that Rashad and I go way back. Here's the pattern that we see in all of these Karen stories. They think they own stuff they do not own. Now, where does that come from? I don't know, maybe slavery. Maybe they think they should still own black people. This is what happens when Karens weaponize the police. When you're used to privilege, equality seems like oppression. It hits you in a certain way when someone is holding you against your will, treating you like you're a criminal and you're an innocent person. This is something that black people face no matter where they are. A stronger black economy lends itself to a stronger, greater economy. Don't think it's exclusive of you, it's inclusive of you. What's your beef with critical race theory? It adds more fuel to the fire of the racist tendencies that we already have. We have a generation of problem solvers that can remedy the problem if they are properly taught what the problem is. You know who created redlining in this country? Mm -hmm. The white liberal. I, I, don't, I don't give a damn who created it. If it's no, a I, racist I, I, policy, racist policy. Shelly, here's what I don't know. I don't know. See, there you go filibustering, brother. You're scared of this truth, but you're gonna get it, though.